Welcome to Wonderland. We are so happy to be back. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Bridget. And hello to all our returning and new audience members. You remember that in season one of Wonderland, we offered a masterclass on pop culture for social change. We brought pop culture innovators and social change visionaries together in deep, fascinating conversation and was able to share those conversations with you. We are welcoming 2020 with a special micro season of what we're calling Wonderland at Frank. Now, it's important to note that Frank is not a person. Frank is an annual gathering for artists, strategists, communicators, and activists. All these people come together at Frank to expand their thinking about strategic communications, narrative change, and storytelling for social justice. I feel like Frank is trial by fire for folks who have really creative, big, out-of-the-box ideas and strategies. And then when they step onto the stage, they're given an opportunity to communicate that idea to an audience, often for the first time. Right, and through these talks, I think we're seeing this field of pop culture for social change really find its collective voice. And so it's an incredible experiment to bring thought leaders together in this space to share their new ideas and really test them out and oftentimes get like direct in the moment feedback from an audience. So we wanted our Wonderland audience to experience some of these ideas. So here's what we're gonna do. In each episode of this special season, we'll introduce and share a talk from Frank. But we're not gonna stop there. After each talk, we'll invite a thought leader or expert to respond, to delve deeper into those ideas, to see how they apply in the world, and see how they will impact our lives and what is shaping up to be a hell of a 2020. Let's get started. We're starting with Aijen Poo. Aijin has been one of the major visionaries and leaders in the culture change and social movement spaces. And she was a featured guest on season one of Wonderland. Now, she gave this talk back in 2015, and we're going back to 2015 because what she says is still incredibly relevant, and it set the stage for a lot of thinking and work that's been done since then. And also, we want to show the evolution of what's happened since she gave this talk to understand where we were, where we've gone, and to set the stage for where we are going. And then after Ijen's talk, we're going to hear from Crystal Echo Hawk, the executive director of Illuminative and a visionary working to change pop culture narratives about Native Americans. Her response will dive into how the pop culture for social change field has evolved in the last five years and what it takes to design a narrative change strategy from scratch. So to get us started, here's Ijen. Hello. Um, it's great to be with all of you. So I'm here to talk about the power of story. I have spent the last 17 years working alongside domestic workers, nannies, housekeepers, and caregivers for the elderly. And they are the workforce that goes to work every day in millions of homes across the country doing the work that makes all other work possible caring for the most precious elements of our lives, our children, our aging loved ones, our homes, 
And it is really the work that makes it possible for us to go out and do what we do every day. Um, and despite this really critical role that this work plays in all of our lives and in the economy, it is among the most vulnerable work in our economy today. You never quite know what you're going to get. It's like defined by the invisibility of working behind closed doors. You could walk into any neighborhood and not know which homes are actually workplaces. Um, they're excluded from some of the most basic labor protections that we all take for granted. We don't even think about them, and they exclude domestic workers. And so there's all kinds of challenges facing this workforce every day that goes to care for our families. And there's enormous challenges that come with trying to make social change and transform those conditions for this workforce as well. If we think about the traditional means of making social change, whether it's civic engagement or um, policy advocacy or forming a union and collectively bargaining, I mean, none of those forms of change actually or methods really work for us. There's no collective. There's no one to bargain with. It's like Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Um, it's really defined by invisibility, as I said before. Um, a lot of the workforce is immigrants, so they don't vote, right? There's so many challenges that we faced in terms of making social change. And that's actually been a huge strength for us, because it's really forced us to be creative about how we think about and practice the art and science of social change. And one of the things that we discovered really early on was the power of story. So one of the ways that we realized this was an incredibly powerful uh, driving force for social change was when we won our first campaign in New York City. We were fighting for what was called the nanny bill in city council. And usually when bills get voted on, it's a pretty boring process where the speaker kind of reads the bill number, says a little bit about the bill, the sponsor says a little bit about the bill, and then they read through every member, and usually the members just get on the mic and say yay or nay. Pretty boring. Um, sometimes there's something passionate that happens, like a speech that somebody makes. It's usually by the sponsor, but usually it's pretty straightforward and happens quickly. And that day, what happened was the sponsor introduced the bill, and there were about 50, 50 or 60 domestic workers in the balcony watching and waiting for the first city bill to protect the rights of domestic workers to pass. And that day, every, every single member, at least in the first half of the vote, actually got up and started by um, City Council Member Bill Perkins from Harlem, who got up and told a story about his grandmother, who was a domestic worker, whose work was never really recognized or adequately compensated, but she made it possible for him to go to school and do what he does in the service of New York City. And he triggered just a series of stories about all the council members who were directly connected and in relationship to domestic workers. And we just realized that we are this interconnected web of human relationships and that story really opens that up for us. And it was a powerful tool that we used to then um, fight for bills at the state level and transform public policy in four states for domestic workers. And in the middle of the campaign to win a Bill of Rights for Domestic Workers in California, the film The Help came out. So here was a moment where 
all of a sudden there was a major Hollywood feature film with two African-American domestic workers as the protagonists, really highlighting the kinds of abuses and vulnerabilities facing domestic workers. And suddenly there was a moment where there was more space in the public imagination for the stories of domestic workers. And we decided to seize this as a moment of opportunity to basically open up that space and actually turn the attention of the millions of people who saw that film and were touched by it to actually think about and experience the stories of domestic workers today, to understand that it wasn't a story about the past, that there are millions of women who do this work today and face many of the same abuses and vulnerabilities, and that there's something that every single person could do about it to support policy change, to support institutional change, and to also support fair employment relationships in their own lives. So we launched a campaign called Be the Help, and we witnessed what we now call transportive, scaled storytelling, but the power of popular culture storytelling to reach really broad audiences and to help you drive fundamental narrative and norm change inside of our popular culture. And that came at a really critical time. We drove tens of thousands of petition signatures to help us uh, pass the California Domestic Worker Bill of Rights, which we won. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and got hundreds of thousands of people engaged in a way that there's no way we could have reached. And when Octavia Spencer won the Golden Globe for her performance in that role, she got up and she said, all work has dignity and should be recognized as such. A line that we fed her, by the way. <laughs> um, and we got more press from that one quote than all of our campaigns combined in the past. So it gave us a taste of the power of popular culture and narrative for driving social change. And it came at a really critical time because we were realizing that this question of what happens to domestic workers and how we value domestic work in society is actually a question that touches all of us very, very directly. Because in this country, we are undergoing an unbelievable demographic shift right now. And we don't really know it and talk about it in the way that we should. And that is the age wave. The fact that the baby boom generation is turning 65 at a rate of 10,000 people per day, 4 million people per year. And people in my grandmother's demographic group of 85 and older are actually the fastest growing demographic in this country because people are living longer than ever before as a result of advances in healthcare. And it means that we just need more care and assistance to live well, to live life on our own terms as we grow older, particularly if we want to age in place. And so this is actually a major shift in our culture, and it just means that we're going to need a lot more care and a lot more domestic workers. And what it means is that the home care workforce has become the fastest growing occupation in the country. So what we have to do is not just impact the story at scale, but we have to actually engage people at scale around their own direct experience with care in this whole other big way. So that is when we decided to take 
what we learn from the work and the help. Take what we learn through our grassroots advocacy and our policy work um, at the city and state level, and also um, learn from the LGBT movement, which was a huge source of inspiration for us, the way that they combined local organizing and advocacy with popular culture narrative change work, which ultimately resulted in us moving from the freedom, and freedom to love to choose who you love and marry from an impossibility to an inevitability, right, in a very short period of time, that we wanted to do something very similar around aging and caregiving. So we took all of those lessons in and we developed a theory of culture change that has four steps to it. Um, the first is just really identifying and making the case, really trying to understand what is the narrative values and norm shift that you want to make. And we decided that we really want to change the way this country thinks and feels about aging and caregiving. And that if we could do that, we could make the impossible inevitable. So everything we're doing is trying to build upon that. And we uh, decided that the next step would have to be to really organize the storytelling industry. Who are the people who are doing popular culture storytelling? What are the institutions that are influencing the stories we ingest that, that are the oxygen that we breathe around us every day, whether it's television or film or music or all kinds of entertainment? And then to take what we learn and experiment, see what has traction, what stories take off, what stories take hold, and ultimately try to create a 360 degree storytelling environment where the stories that carry the values and the images and the um, faces of the people that we want to be seen in our new vision for society ultimately can be where that we open up more space and democratize the story of who we are as a country. And ultimately, when we do that, we can see new possibilities in terms of what's possible politically and at the policy level. And so here we are. We're in stage three of trying to create this 360-degree storytelling environment. And one of the things we decided would be helpful is to have anchor moments for storytelling, to really try to catalyze um, storytelling at scale. And so we decided that we were going to try to make a major national holiday. <laughs> we decided that we were going to try to make Grandparents' Day the kind of national holiday that you celebrate, like Mother's Day or Christmas, you know, it's like, um, and we wanted to brand it. Not only did we want to make the holiday, but we wanted to brand it as a holiday for multi-generational storytelling. Um, so we've basically been, this is our third year trying to elevate the celebration of Grandparents Day. And last year we did a summer long storytelling campaign called Throwback Summer, where we had young people nominate their grandparents in one of five best yearbook categories, including best dressed, most talented, most ahead of their time. Thousands of people participated in sharing their stories and voting. Um, and we got Grandparents' Day to trend on Twitter and Facebook for the first time. <laughs> um, we have teamed up with The Moth. How many of you know The Moth? 
They're amazing, amazing organization. And um, they have a community program that is partnering with us to train care storytellers, helping to inspire everyday people around the country to tell their stories, but also helping to inspire influential storytellers in Hollywood to tell these stories more. I just wrote a book called The Age of Dignity. It's, yeah. <laughs> and it's full of stories, including my own of my grandparents and my aunt and my family. And um, we're also using it as a platform to inspire other people to see their own stories reflected, but also move us towards the kind of solutions that we want to get to in stage four of our strategy. Um, and we're still also working with films and television showrunners and screenwriters to try to seed the kinds of stories that we know need to be told for us to really take this on as a country. Which finally um, leaves me with my final lesson for all of you that I wanted to share. And we are still, all of this is experimental. We are still learning. We obviously have not yet created the 360 degree storytelling environment that we know we need to create on aging and caregiving. But hopefully with all of your help, uh, we will. And we will create the kind of story momentum that will help us make the cultural and values and ultimately the story shift in our society that will open up more caring, more understanding, and the kinds of solutions that we need for the future. But as we do this work, a really important realization came to us, which is that all of us, especially in this room, we often talk about changing hearts and minds. And really, at the end of the day, I think we have much more practice at changing minds, that our muscle is really around analysis and logical thinking and making our arguments well and numbers and data and at the end of the day, there's this whole aspect of the human experience, which is about our emotional lives. We experience the world as humans with um, emotional and emotional experience and reality. And that ultimately, that space of our emotional life, while incredibly unruly and unpredictable, is also a space of expansive imagination and creativity and possibility, which oftentimes the space of politics is not. And I would say that we cannot afford, as people who believe in social change, who carry the vision for the future that we carry, we cannot afford to leave that arena of the emotional life on the table. That ultimately it is our responsibility to get in there, get in the arena, and actually try to enhance our sense of connection, our sense of love, our sense of the human experience in its entirety. And that the process of telling stories and sharing stories in small ways like we just did, or in scaled ways like through movies and film and entertainment, that that in and of itself can help us to understand our whole humanity, our connection to one another, and perhaps be in and of itself the solution. Thank you.
You know, one of the ways that the pop culture for social change field is growing is through the evolutionary ideas. Somebody puts out an idea and then another person and another person picks it up. And it's like a snowball gaining mass as more and more people add on. And this is exactly what has happened with Aijin's talk. She described how she has used pop culture to create openings in the public imagination to help justice break through. And her ideas have laid the groundwork for other people, including Crystal Echohawk, to experiment. Absolutely. Aijin's really is an incredibly important foundational talk about culture change strategy. And that's why we wanted to talk to Crystal. Crystal Echohawk is the executive director of Illuminative, which is a new collective of indigenous strategists, artists, researchers who have come together to really create infrastructure and a community and a network across entertainment, education, politics, community organizing to radically shift how most Americans think about Native communities, the role that they have played, the history on this land. And so it is less than two years old, uh, Illuminative, but has already created a really indelible footprint in the pop culture for social change field and is already creating an outsized impact on the entertainment industries. I find the parallels between Aijin and Crystal really fascinating of two women who, organizers, leaders within their own communities, who are hyper-focused on what it means to build a narrative strategy around an invisibilized community. To go from, as uh, Ajin talks about, invisible to visible, and to take that even further, powerful. So I was really interested for us to talk to Crystal because I wanted to see how much of Ajin's talk felt new to her, still, even five years later, and what sparked for her in terms of the kind of thinking she's doing for the culture change narrative strategy that she is implementing through Illuminative. So we called up Crystal. Hi, Crystal. Hello. Crystal, to start, we just really wanted to hear your sort of gut responses to Ivan's talk. What were your reactions and what about it resonated for you? Yeah, what a beautiful talk, you know, right off the bat, um, as she was really just, you know, kind of exploring their journey was, you know, how much domestic workers, it's defined by their invisibility. And clearly for Native peoples, that's what our, our research found is that invisibility is our greatest barrier and how the invisibility really just serves to dehumanize. And so I think that's really in part where the power of story comes in. It's really about leveraging that visibility, but really connecting, you know, as human beings to one another. I think also what resonated for me was just really is, you know, looking at story as a solution. You know, I think we also found in our research how it is going to be the power of story and that how pop culture is one of the three centers of perpetuating both our invisibility or just some really harmful and toxic stereotypes and how 
our research really led to us, that story is going to be a solution for us as well. I think we're just at a, on a different part of the journey. And then I think the final thing that really moved me was, you know, she, she talked about how we often talk about moving hearts and minds and that I think we're all a little bit more naturally focused typically around trying to change minds, right? But how do we really get in and understand what it takes to change someone's heart? As Native people, we've We've gone out, we've done research, we've really talked to people about how certain things in society are really harmful to us, like whether it's racist sports mascots or other things. And and oftentimes people just tell us that we're wrong when we say something's racism, we really don't know what we mean, <laughs> right? And so even sometimes trying to change people's minds, I think that we've really found in terms of our work, it is going to be really important for us to change people's hearts. Crystal. Can you just talk a little bit about how you are building a culture change strategy? What are you thinking about when it comes to building a cultural strategy, especially for Indigenous people and communities? And what is going into that work? Yeah. Well, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, the first part of our, our, our culture change strategies was just one, how we're using all of the research that we did with the Reclaiming Native Truth Project, you know, which was the largest public opinion and research project ever conducted about Native people. And really the purpose of the project was to really map what are the dominant narratives that diverse sets of Americans and institutions hold about Native people. But we were able to also really understand a lot about audience in which, you know, 80% of Americans know little to nothing about Native peoples, but then we saw nearly 80% want to know more, and we're able to actually kind of drill down and begin to see which audiences were really um, interested in learning more about us, right? And, and a lot of it was millennials, in particular millennial women, um, but also people of color, particular Latinx people, you know, liberals, and we were able to start to break down who are some of those audiences that really want to know more. And I think in the first, you know, year, I mean, we're so young <laughs> in our journey, was really to even just get this research out and get people talking about it, to really go out and educate. But I think to also really, as we went out into pop culture and really began to talk to people in the industry, was get them to even just wake up and, and look at that Native Americans still exist or that there's really an audience for our stories. But I think 2020, actually, there's a slate of TV shows and possible films that I think one on that level is going to really afford a lot of opportunities. And really, how are we going to kind of align with those and where do we build some campaigns around them. So I think that's sort of the first wave of our cultural strategy is how do we make ourselves visible? How can we connect where we are? We really begin to humanize our people and where people can actually make some connections with us on issues and things that we care about. So Crystal, just to follow up from that, I'm super intrigued to know as you were moving this research in front of people inside the industry, storytellers, executives, What's the reaction? How are people responding both to the research you're sharing, but the critique you're offering around this either harmful storytelling or complete invisibilizing around Native people? And what are you hearing from people? I mean, the reaction's been amazing. I think most people, again, we're out of sight, out of mind. They really don't see us as contemporary. So I think there's just been an intrigue as we've, you know, had the opportunity to go into some pretty big rooms within major studios and major agencies and media makers and present the research. And and a lot of times it's like, wow, we didn't know or we just didn't even think about it this way. 
in an industry that's really being, I think, held more their feet to the fire around diversity and inclusion and equity, um, realizing that we weren't really even part of that equation, even by our allies. You know, one studio in particular, Paramount, I mean, as soon as they heard our research, they were like, wow. Uh, we do have one native storyline and it's a little bit controversial. Maybe we didn't do it well. So let's give you resources to actually go out and produce a mini documentary to tell a story through native voices. And how did, how do we kind of put our, our weight, you know, behind you as Paramount Network? And they really wanted to ensure that the entire crew, right, from writers, directors, and producers were all native people. Or how, you know, when Wes Duty was going to get his Oscar at the Governor's Awards, that the Academy really got behind hiring, a, you know, a Native entity to produce that. So they brought Illuminative on to produce his tribute film. I think we still have a lot of work to do because it, it still seems like that studios want to sort of bring us in on the back end, as opposed to really allowing Native people to come in and pitch original content and be there from the start of the process. So I think we're starting to see a lot of positive steps, but I think there's we're always pushing them how they can continue to do better. Crystal, so I wanted to just dig in a little bit more around this question of building community and doing so intersectionally across a range of different communities. So there's the work that Illuminative and others are doing to really organize a narrative change community around Indigenous narratives and storytelling. And then there's the work that you and others are doing to really find the connecting point between narratives about Indigenous people and indigeneity and other racial justice issues, immigration issues, environmental issues, and communities that really see themselves as having a stake in some of those other spaces. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how Illuminative, how you as a thought leader in this um, space are navigating that community building effort within the Native community and across all of these different communities with shared faith. Yeah, definitely. Um, just from the get-go when we were even in the research phase was really understanding that if we were going to really be successful in, in changing the narrative, changing the story about Native people, that we really needed to call in Indian country to be a part of this process. We needed to call in our allies to really be thought partners with us. We had to really make sure that diverse constituencies across Indian country, because we are so multidimensional and so complex in Indian country, that people were really bought in and engaged and, and really being very intentional about how we began to look at thought leaders that were really invade, in, involved in narrative and, and culture change work, you know, how we could bring them in and, and, and really learn also from the work that they were doing. There's been like a humility and, a, and an eagerness to really look at how we build relationships out across different um, communities. And how do we come at this work and not only like, hey, how can you help Native people and how can you help us change the narrative, but where can we get to a point where this is about reciprocity? How do we also show up for you? The thing that I think is so fascinating is, you know, you say Illuminative and you all are sort of young and early in this work, and you are, but like this field is still very nascent. And I just wanted to check with you and see what you thought based on what you, your experience over the last few years has been. Like what's changed in the pop culture for social change fields? What's, what's advanced? What's evolved? What's new in the work we're doing collectively? 
I think that people's understanding of how important this space is, right? Where I think it probably at some point people are like rolling their eyes like, oh, it's Hollywood work. And like a limited understanding about where the impact is and where really I think there's a growing understanding about the importance of shifting culture (laughs) in order to have political victories and to shift policy. That just seems to be a real seismic shift than when we first entered. Yeah, I remember the eye rolls. I think Bridget, you and I encountered many eye rolls. But now instead of eye rolls, we're getting people going, give me, I want more. Mm -hmm. And how do I be in connection? And that just is such a transformative experience, both for our individual and collective work. It's, It's profound. Crystal, as you look at the growth and evolution of Illuminative, where do you hope that the field is going? What new kinds of infrastructure opportunities for collaboration do you hope lie ahead for this field? Boy, that's a great question. Um, For us, what's really central is always understanding the role of research around this and how it can play such a, a powerful role. And I think when I look at opportunities around infrastructure and a collaboration, I think, you know, how do we create infrastructure around research that really can benefit a multitude of communities engaged in this kind of work. You know, an infrastructure around research that really makes sure that we're counting everyone, that we, when we mean equity, we really truly mean equity, and that nobody gets left behind, right? Nobody gets left off the data table. So can you tell us, like, what's your most pressing idea or and narrative strategy for 2020 that you think is critical to land? I think it's really making Native people visible and seeing that they're important because by many analysts are are saying that as we look at the key swing states (laughs) for the vote 2020, right, Native vote is going to be really critical. So how do we really make sure that we're making Native people visible and their voices heard? That is absolutely essential for us in 2020 and that, that we are a part of the national conversation and that all of the different candidates see that, whether it's ranging from presidential all the way down to local races, understanding the importance of of Native people, their issues, and that their vote counts. I think a couple things struck me in the conversation with Crystal. We think of 2015 as a long time ago, but that it was a blip in many ways, and that Aijin's words and thoughts and thinking that she had developed over the previous years still had so much resonance and learning for a brilliant leader like Crystal. Uh, I just thought it was really powerful to see these two women continuing to occupy and build out the pop culture for social change field. Yeah, there were two things that came into my mind talking with Crystal. One, because of where she is in her journey and within the sort of ecosystem of narrative folks who are working on indigenous narratives in the U.S., it's sort of like it was a parallel moment of discovery that she's in now and that Ijin was in at the time that she did this talk. This moment that she's in where you're sort of organizing a, a community, a network of narrative drivers, and beginning to actually develop the strategy and, and test strategy is 
It's one of those milestone moments in the evolution of a long-term culture change process that we as a field are now recognizing as a moment, like methodologically, it's a moment. And there are all of this, this kind of work and inquiry and organizing that is a part of that stage in the broader kind of theory of change around narrative work. And so I was really happy that the conversation with Crystal allows us to name that to name that part of the process, which I think Ijin was, as somebody who was very nascent and pioneering in bringing this work into a social justice organization, was sort of figuring out as she went. So I just felt like there was some magic there, and I was really excited to hear it. I would add that Crystal started to pull out some of the early stages of what it means to build a culture change narrative strategy, as Bridget was saying, but like one sort of deep, deep research. And those early conversations where it's a combination of organizing, you know, good old school organizing inside the entertainment industry in terms of bringing to light to influencers, entertainment executives, producers, like what's been missing or what's been harmful and the beginning of partnerships that are starting to emerge, like the ones they did with Paramount. So what you can start to pull out there is just sort of the patterns and the ways that people and communities like Crystal and so many of her partners within the indigenous community are starting to come together to build that strategy and steps it takes to implement it. So Bridget, to summarize, what's the big idea we want to take away from this episode? I think that the big idea is that we need to invest in leaders like Ijin and Crystal and others who are developing and implementing long-term culture change strategies from within social justice movements. Wonderland at Frank is a production of the Pop Culture Collaborative. Nancy Vitali and Destry Sibley produced the series. Sound engineers include Matt Noble, Mike Gilmore, Eric Elterman, and Colin Ashmead Bobbitt. Our sound designer and engineer is Samantha Gatzek. These episodes were recorded at the Awareness Group Studios in New York City, the Loft Recording Studios in Bronxville, and at WBEZ in Chicago. Special thanks to our friends at Frank, Jade Dozier, and Lauren Rawlings. To listen to other episodes of Wonderland and explore ways to build your own culture change strategies, visit our website at thisiswonderland.us. <laughs>